Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. This will be our uh, fourth study on spiritual gifts. Number four, uh, we are making progress. May not always feel that way to you, but we are making progress at a pace that I feel is appropriate for the topic. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, and this morning we are going to be looking at the structure for the church. This is not all that the Bible has to say on the structure for the church. Certainly it's only a small portion, but it does explain how the members of the church are arranged and the thinking that went into the arrangement, who does the arrangement, which we touched on last week. Last week was spiritual gifts as God wills. And you'll notice that is how verse 11 finishes. Uh, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So it's important to understand at the outset, natural gifts can be developed, learned. There's a portion of natural gifting that somebody is born with. I think if you live long enough, uh, you don't have to get too exposed to the people in the world to realize there are people out there who do things that you cannot do. And when you see them do it, it, it can be awe-inspiring to think, I cannot do that. <laughs> and not only, as you get older, do you realize, I cannot do that. Um, I will never do that. <laughs> that is not in the cards for me. It is not happening. Uh, which, you know, kind of flies in the face with a lot of messaging in the world, doesn't it? But we know it to be true, regardless of the messaging. We all have natural abilities, natural gifts. When it comes to natural abilities and natural gifts, there are great stories of people developing things that were at one time in their life weaknesses, and they turn into strengths. There are stories of CEOs who knew the business inside and out, but could not speak in public. I mean, could not. And they work hard, and they uh, learn a format, and they, they get better at it, and they turn out to be pretty capable. There, you might have had an experience as a child where you start to do something in sports or in the arts, and you're not very good at it. You're not as good as the people around you. It's challenging. And maybe you've had the experience if you stuck with it and toughed it out to say, you know what? I maybe didn't get to the point that at one point I thought I would get to, but I ended up being somewhat capable in drawing, painting, singing, playing, whatever it is. Natural gifts are one thing. Spiritual gifts are something else. And there are certain spiritual gifts that God either wills for a person to have it or not. And it's that simple. And it's always been that way. And this passage this morning is going to deal with that reality and what it means. How we should respond to that. Ultimately though, 
we need to remember the song that we just sung, which Nathan, thank you for, let's keep that in the rotation through the spiritual gifts section. If, if that's okay, you're in charge of that. But if that's all right, because it's Jesus who died on the cross. It's a man of sorrows who suffered and bled and died for us in order to redeem our lives. And we use that word redemption very loosely sometimes. But we shouldn't use it loosely when we think about the way Jesus has redeemed our lives. He has redeemed us in the sense of he has taken someone devoted to destruction and judgment, someone whose life was marred by sin, someone whose eyes were darkened as to the counsel of God's will, someone who would spend their whole life perhaps conquering the entire world only to die and stand before him in judgment and find out that they were the person who gained the whole world and lost their soul. And that eternity would be paid for it. When we talk about redemption in terms of what Jesus has done for us, he has taken us from utter hopelessness. Of course, we might not have evaluated our lives that way, but that is the ultimate evaluation. And if that is the ultimate evaluation, what other evaluation matters? He has taken us from a place of utter hopelessness and redeemed us into people of infinite value. And I can use that word infinite with freedom because he has made us into eternal sons and daughters of an eternal kingdom where we have eternal life. And that redemption that he has accomplished gives him and him alone the right to decide what these redeemed lives will look like on this earth. You can't say I was an object of God's wrath because of my sin and devoted to destruction. Now God has redeemed me, but I will only live the life that he wants me to live so long as it aligns with what I'm okay with too. You get no leeway to make that call. If God, through Christ, has redeemed us, then God decides what we will do. God has the right, as these new creations that we are, to command the service that he commands. And so, what I'm getting at here is, on two levels, you need to understand, one, it's not up to you what you will do and be for the Lord. You don't get to make the Christian life about you. And two, you don't get to make the church how you want it to be and how you would like it to look. You don't get to do that. It's Jesus' life if you've given it to him. And it's Jesus' church, which he's bought. And so these things will challenge us at various points in our lives, not all the time, but this chapter and the chapters around it will challenge us very deeply because some of us will have earnest desires to do things and experience things and see things that it is not in God's will for us to do, see, or experience. And ultimately, that has to be okay with the Christian. Others will wish that when they looked at God's church, they saw an organization that was different than what it is. 
perhaps more familiar to other organizations that they're comfortable with. Maybe a church that runs more like a business, or maybe a church that feels more like the family they grew up with, or maybe a church that looks more like the family they envision or wish that they had, or whatever it may be. You don't get to make those calls. If God has redeemed us, then our lives belong to Him and the church belongs to Him. And it's our responsibility to serve Him, again, this was last week, as He wills. As He wills. And this has everything to do with spiritual gifts. As we read from Romans 12 last week, because the same body analogy is used there in Romans 12... Let me read it to you very quickly. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And you remember I quoted a famous pastor. What's the problem with living sacrifices? They keep getting up and crawling off the altar. That's the problem. Right? A dead sacrifice, you kill it and you offer it, it's dead and it's gone, right? But a living sacrifice doesn't want to stay there. You and I, we, we may serve the Lord very sincerely for big chunks of our life and then eventually a distraction, a problem, an obstacle and we want to crawl back to something else. Some hobby, some, some group, some ambition, some love, some passion. But Christians are called to be a living sacrifice. And you might hear the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you if you're struggling with that. As he spoke to the church of Ephesus in Revelation saying, I have this against you. You have left your first love. They've crawled off the altar, the church in Ephesus had. Return, come back. Anyway, Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Why is there a reasonable service? Because of what we sung. Jesus owns our lives. If he redeems us, he owns us. So it's reasonable that we serve him. And do not be conformed to this world. Your life. Literally, how you spend your time, your days should not look much like the other people in the world. Christian? Say, well, you know, there's a lot of days in the week. And there's times for hobbies and goals, talents. Yeah, sure, there, there is. But a Christian's life is marked by prayer, acknowledging God in all things so that he might direct their paths, by sacrificially serving the Lord God whom they love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is not the way the rest of the world is living. What they do with their time is going to look very different from what a Christian does with theirs. And by the way, I'm not passing out time clocks for anyone this morning. I don't, you, don't, you don't owe me an account for any of this. I didn't redeem you. I didn't die for you. You must present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, not being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Christian faith is a thinking faith. It is a thoughtful faith. It is an intentional faith. It is not always an emotional faith. 
It is not always a great experience, faith. It is a thought. We do what we do because we have considered it and what the Lord wants for us and we have reached a conviction. And so we do what we do because we're going to serve the Lord in it. And that process is transforming. That's what Romans 12, 2 says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how people change the way they live. They think differently. And then verse 3 of Romans chapter 12 launches right into spiritual gifts. We'll return to verse 5 of Romans 12 in a minute. So, what we are reading about, you may not like parts of it. It's not up to you. Let's begin in verse 12. Let's read down through verse 14. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So that will be our first point. Verses 12 through 14. One body, not one member. There are no one member churches. Okay? That's locally and universally. There are no churches of a guy on his fishing boat on Sunday morning out on the lake having church. Uh-uh. That doesn't exist. There is one body... There are many members individually of that body. But there is one body of many members. Now, turn over to Romans 12.5 just to see one verse. This is not the only time we see this analogy. I'm going to learn something from two other passages in the Bible just by reading one verse from each passage. Now, whenever someone tells you to read one verse from a passage, make sure you take the time to think about the context of that passage or else you're going to be led into all sorts of error and trouble. We spent a lot of time last week in Romans chapter 12 and I've summarized the first part of it this morning so I am taking for granted you understand the context is about living sacrificially to the Lord, serving the Lord as He chooses, serving Him with all your heart. And now verse 5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now that is a different way of saying it. Isn't it? We are one body in Christ, but individually members of one another. Now, we don't often think of church membership like that, do we? We are all part of the body of Christ here, but you don't belong, if you are a member here, to an organization. Or to a structure. Or to a business entity registered in Delaware. A lot of companies are registered in Delaware. You don't belong to a team that plays for a school. Your membership here is actually a giving of yourself to the others. And together that mutual giving of each other represents the body of Christ. The one body here. That is a 
mind-shifting way of thinking. That is a way by which one might begin to be transformed by the renewing of their mind, by thinking about something differently. See, we are very comfortable to say, I am a servant of Jesus. I belong to Jesus. My life belongs to God. Because we can get away with making God something in the abstract. Right? And whatever God is doing in our heart, it's happening privately, open to personal interpretation. And so when we say we belong to God, we can pretty much skirt any sort of accountability around that unless we're living in some blatant sin. Outright neglect. But if we say we are actually members of one another in our service to Christ, that seems to come with some implied obligations. That seems to come with some responsibility. This is how this one body language is represented in 1 Corinthians 12.5. Look over to Colossians 1.18. Now again, context is important. I'm not going to go into all of Colossians 1. I did, however, recently preach through the entire book of Colossians. If you're interested, you can get my, my, my thoughts on all of Colossians 1 freely. If you'd like to review it, I'm happy to. But I don't think Colossians 1 is tough to understand. And in verse 18, we find this. And he, that is Jesus is the head of the body, there's the analogy again, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now this part of the body, as an analogy, is important because if we find that we actually belong to each other, in Romans 12, here we find specifically the body called the church. Do you see that? He is the head of the body, the church. Which means this structure that God has willed for his people takes place under the authority of Jesus Christ and this is how Jesus has set it up. Where does that leave the so-called rogue servant of Jesus Christ? You know, the rogue agent. The, well, I'm a Christian... I believe in Jesus. I serve Jesus. Really? That's great. What is your role in his body, the church? I mean, we understand that Jesus is represented on the earth by his body. He is the head. The church is the body. That the body is committed to each other and that they are serving one another. They are, in fact, belonging to one another in their service of Christ. We understand, and we'll come to see it pretty clearly here, that he has uniquely gifted members individually in the body of Christ so that they are complementary to each other so that the body might grow into the maturity of the fullness of Christ. That's Ephesians 4. We understand these things. So if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus is my head, my authority, but he has not placed me within any church. I have a problem with that. Not because I'm mad at you or I want to have some critical thing to say. We do not see that structure anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere. I mean, the New Testament was written to local churches. Paul didn't write, you know, when, when Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, he wrote it to the Corinthian church. He didn't say, 
you know, concerning women in the ministry and then publish it on Amazon for everybody that wanted to spend $9.99 to read it individually. He didn't do that. He wrote to the church, about their church, and he said distribute it among the church. Why did Paul do that? Because, Ephesians 4, he was one of the apostles and prophets given by God to do that. We have their completed works right here. And it doesn't talk about rogue agents. Paul, wait, you say, Paul, think about Paul though. Paul doesn't seem to have belonged to a local church. I mean, think about Paul. Wasn't Paul a rogue agent? He traveled on these missionary journeys. He went from place to place. And, he, and you know, he, he was on these, these missionary adventures, you might call them. A little different from the adventures we see on Christian reality TV today. I mean, he's getting stoned and left for dead and barely making out of some of these places alive. But nevertheless, Paul didn't belong to a church. Yeah. What do you think he did every time he showed up someplace to preach? He started a church. <laughs> when you say, well, when Paul arrived to Ephesus to work there, wherever it was, and there was no church, he didn't belong to a church in that moment. Yeah, and he immediately set his attention and efforts to working to build a church. And when he had the church, he stayed with that church, working in that church, telling them how to live as a church until he went and did it again somewhere else. There's just no representation of the church membership being one. Now, we do see a lot of religions in the world about the individual. Hinduism, Buddhism, Eastern mysticism, New Age thought that has come from Eastern mysticism and infiltrated the United States, in some cases infiltrated Christian thinking. Well, this is about you. There's a guy by the name of Bob Roth. Not Bob Ross, different guy. <laughs> Bob Roth. And he went to study with the Maharashi. You may not know who the Maharashi is. He's dead now. But he was a famous Hindu who developed transcendental meditation. And people who would come to him to learn transcendental meditation would pay to be trained to become teachers of transcendental meditation. And they came and they imported that to the United States. The Maharashi, when he died, had about $300 million of wealth. He did pretty well with transcendental Meditation. You know what transcendental meditation is? This guy Bob Roth has taught it to a bunch of celebrities you would recognize. Katy Perry, Tom Hanks, Jerry Seinfeld, Hugh Jackman, Oprah Winfrey, and the list goes on and on and on. What it is is you start the day for about 20 minutes. You meditate. How many of you have heard a celebrity or famous person said, I've really incorporated a lot of meditation into my life? And this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. You meditate. And what you do is you develop a mantra, a phrase, or a word and you repeat it in a specific way over and over again for 20 minutes thinking of nothing else. You know what that is? That is a religion all about you. <laughs> That's not Christianity. Contrast that with what you see from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when he teaches the disciples how to pray. Two things about that. First of all, he says, when you pray, do thus. Go into your closet, when the word really indicates, you know, an inner dwelling in your house with no windows or exterior visibility so that you're not seen. Go into your closet 
and pray like this. So you, you picture now, you're alone in your closet. There's nobody, he doesn't say take 10 people into, the, into your closet and pray like, you're alone in there, right? But listen to how Jesus prays. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. It's all in the plural. When you pray, when you spend your quiet time in the morning with God, when you're getting ready for your day, again, the world, you say, well, I don't do that. Well, you know, neither does the world. The whole part about do not conform to this world. <laughs> yeah, they don't either. The best of them kind of sit down and repeat a mantra to themselves for 20 minutes apparently and that might make them very ambitious and focused and successful. I'm not denying the power of self-focusing yourself on whatever your individual goals are. I'm simply saying that is not Christianity. Christianity has a person going in to pray before God and praying for God's people. For their sin. For their forgiveness. For their sustenance. For their needs. In a closet by yourself. Is that what your prayer looks like? If you think, and this is where the mind needs to transform, if you think about your Christian membership as belonging to Jesus Christ the head and belonging to members of the church individually, that will change your focus if you let it. This is not about individual goals and achievements. So let me just say this as a summary of verses 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians. You will not succeed in making your Christian religion about yourself. You will not succeed. Or you may succeed in developing a religion. It will not be Christianity. You say, well, I don't make my Christian faith about myself. I go to church because the kids need to hear it. That's making it about yourself. I mean, you're not going to church because somebody else's kids need you present. You're going to church because your kids need to hear it. Okay? I go to church because it's good for my marriage. That's about yourself. You know, I belong to the church because it keeps me focused on important things in the midst of my career. That's about yourself. You're supposed to serve in the body of Christ. This is why a lot of people, they finish raising their kids, they don't go to church anymore. Their marriage gets better, you don't see them anymore. That happens all the time. A couple shows up, need marriage counseling, get marriage counseling. Things start to look up. They start to grow a little closer to the Lord. Marriage is going okay. They leave. Happens all the time. You might build a religion about yourself. That is not Christianity. So, one body, not one member. Verse 14. Second point. Let's look at the parts of the body. From verses 15 through 26. This one I've divided into three sections. We'll begin reading verses 15 through 19. If the foot, boy, he's really taking this body analogy seriously, isn't he? I'm always afraid to do that when I come up with a good metaphor analogy. Like, I know if I go deep enough, it's going to fall apart. But Paul's, you know, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit here. He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole uh, were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. Hear the echo of verse 11 there, as God wills. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Here we get a bit of... God's design, which we've covered. God has created us to complement each other in terms of spiritual gift and Christian service. To complement each other. And he begins, this is verses 15 through 19, speaking to a crowd of people who I will call, for note-taking sake this morning, the take my ball and go home crowd. Take my ball and go home crowd. If you didn't grow up around playgrounds or basketball or football fields or pickup games, then you may have no idea what I'm talking about. But there is a type of person that attends those kinds of things. And the moment they don't get their way, the moment they get left out, the moment they don't get to be the quarterback or they don't get to shoot a three or they're not on the team they want or they lose three times, they say, I'm taking my ball and going home. We might call this, for those of you who follow the NBA, the Kyrie Irving crowd. Sorry, I couldn't resist. And for those of you who don't follow the NBA, just forget it. It means absolutely nothing of relevance. But in professional sports, you might call these the guys who never stay with the team and never stay with an organization, and they're always leaving upset about something. This coach didn't use me the way I was supposed to be used. This coach didn't let me explore all my talents. This coach wasn't developing me the way that I should have been. This is the crowd in the church that says, well, if I can't be a hand, I'm out of here. And what does Paul say to that? He says, just because somebody stands up and says, I can't be a hand, I'm out of here, doesn't mean they're actually out of there. In other words, you can quit, but you are not resigned from your obligations before God. You can say, I'm not going to be a member of that church anymore. Don't think that God is going to let you off the hook in terms of accountability. If he created you to be a foot, you're going to be a foot and if you stop being a foot, he's still going to hold you accountable for the foot that you should have been. That is not going to be comfortable and it's not going to work out. You say, I'm sick of being a foot. I want to be a hand. Promote me to a hand. No, then I'm going to go find another place that will let me be a hand. Guess what? Show up and try to be a hand at the other place and see what happens. See what happens. See if God lets you get away with that. See how it goes. Now, without going into specifics, I have been in this church a long time. More than 20 years. Long time. And not just like attending, but I have been attending pretty much everything for a long time. And involved in all sorts of ministries for a long time. And I have seen this play out over and over and over again. I want to be a teacher. I'm supposed to be a teacher. That's great news. I have great news. Pastors are not in the business of turning away good help. Okay? You come to me and say, I really feel called to teach. We're going to try to develop that. that. That would be awesome. You know? That would be great. There's a lot of teaching that needs done. Come to me and say, I want to be a teacher. I feel called to preach. That is awesome. Might it mean that you get taken away from here? It could. 
That's okay. The Lord is going to use you in a mighty way. We have sent people away to pursue professional ministry on good terms because we affirmed it does appear God has called you to preach. It does appear God has called you to teach. Go forth and serve the Lord with all your heart as you feel He's calling you. But there's another crowd where we say, okay, and you start to work with them to teach. And maybe you find out, I don't want any help. <laughs> I want to teach, but I want to teach what I want to teach in the way that I want to teach it. And I don't want any oversight. I don't care if pastors are supposed to be overseers, plain as day in the Bible. I don't want... No, no, no. I'm going to teach what I want to teach. And the moment you try to tell me what I can or can't teach, we're going to have a problem. Well, that's not going to happen. That doesn't happen anywhere inside any Bible studies that is, are happening on this campus in the church. I mean, think about all the Bibles. We have youth Bible studies and children's Bible studies sermons, adult Bible studies on various nights of the week with various teachers all right here on the campus, right? We're supposed to be overseeing some of that. Nobody gets to just go do whatever they want, including me, by the way. You say, well, who's overseeing you? Everybody's overseeing me. Do you realize how many times someone comes up to me and says, hey, I'm not sure I agree with what you said there. And it's plain as day. It's not happening in a back room with six people. Everybody's overseeing me. And boy, do I feel it. <laughs> so, you get people. I want to teach. And maybe say, look, your, your character is not in line here yet. Or your doctrine is not in line here yet. You need to grow. Or, look, your character, your doctrine are fine. And when you get up to teach, it's just not clear. It's not, we can work and try to develop some things. And you work and try to develop some things. And it's like, ah, it's, we just don't feel that you are gifted that way. Well, I'm going to go teach somewhere else. I'm going to go preach somewhere else. I'm going to go leave. I'm going to go do the big showy thing somewhere else where people where I can be what I've been called to be. Over 20 years, I have never ever seen that go real well. Never. Because again, pastors are not in the habit of turning down good help who want to volunteer and help. If a pastor who is faithful and honest and appears to be genuine is telling you you need growth or you're not gifted here, you should listen to them. And this is just one element of this discussion. But, but I think what we're seeing here in the text is just because you raise your hand and say, I don't like what I'm doing, I don't want to do it anymore. I mean, you can have those conversations. I'm not saying... No one can do anything but what they're doing. But if you take off in a huff saying, I'm going to go be something else, even though people are clearly telling you, ah, 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 no, that's... It doesn't magically change because you relocate. It doesn't magically improve. A lot of the people who've done that, they're not even anywhere near the ministry anymore. Some don't even go to church. Period. The take my ball and go home crowd. In our church, we have class times and services. And the reason we have those is because we want to be responsible for what's being taught as best we can. You know, a lot of churches, if they find out there's a Bible study, a private Bible study going on outside the church, they try to go and investigate. And we don't do that. And I don't think we're ever going to do that. 
But the reason why they do it is because they don't want false teaching to infiltrate the church, which is something they're supposed to have some sort of oversight in, right? So I understand why they do it. I'm not commending it. I'm just saying it's the pastor's responsibility to do that. And people want to, I have a word from the Lord. We had a guy one time, I could go on for a long time on this one. We had a guy one time, give his life to the Lord, join the church, come sit right up here up front. I was a teenager at the time. Uh, very faithful, attending everything. Within three weeks of giving his life to the Lord, wanted to know why he couldn't stand up and preach. Which sounded absurd to everyone except this guy. He left our church, went to another church in the region, I'll say, and they let him start teaching right away. Churches are so, in some places, desperate for new members and interest in their church that if you show up and say, hey, I'm a Christian, I want to teach, I feel like the Lord's called me to teach, they'll just give them an audience. Okay. <laughs> a lot of the awful church organizations that have infiltrated this country started because pastors gave people platforms inside the local church. They had no business giving them. There's a, the vineyard ministry, which if you want to read about the bankruptcy of the vineyard ministry, just you don't need to listen to me. Go read on Wikipedia for all I care. But it's pretty obvious, the bankruptcy of the vineyard ministry. That started because a guy showed up in Chuck Smith's church saying, hey, I want to teach tonight. And Chuck Smith said, okay. <laughs> pretty soon you got people jumping over pews and, and, and going into trances and, and, and flopping around on the floor. And, and, and because... This guy got everybody fired up. You say, well, maybe the Spirit of God was doing something. Yeah, I don't think so. Look at the fruit of what came out of that. Look at the people. So there's a responsibility here. And when, when a pastor tells you, I think, when a friend tells you, I think, this is your gifting or this, is, this might be a good place for you. You should listen sincerely. They are probably... I, it, I fail to see the, their motivation unless you just really think something sinister about them. I fail to see their motivation being, no, 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 no. We want to hold you back. So, the take my ball and go home crowd. Um, next section, 20 through 24. We'll do this one quickly. But now indeed there are many members yet one body and the eye cannot say to the hand I have no need of you nor again the, hand, the head to the feet I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable on these we bestow greater honor and on our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. In other words, we recognize the vital nature of the parts of our body that don't get shown to everybody and we care for them and cover them up because they are important to who we are as people. But our presentable parts have no need. Uh, second part of verse 24, which I think I'm supposed to stop before it, but I'm going to read it anyway. God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body. In other words, when God composed the physical body, how many parts are covered up in God's composition that are pretty important? Do you see my lungs or my heart or my you know, intestines or my kidneys or my liver right now? If you do, you know, let me know. That's a different spiritual gift. I've never, never seen uh, the Superman one before. If you see them, uh, that's impressive because they're not presentable. They're not on display. Some of you try to watch those medical videos, you know they shouldn't be on display. They're not presentable. Are they vital? Yeah. 
Yeah, they're vital. That's the analogy here. Now, this section I would call is addressed to the crowd. We don't need you get off the bus. Okay? There are people who think so highly of themselves, they don't think they need a lot of the folks around. It's great if they're there. You know, if they can give some offerings. You know, take up a seat. You know, greet some people. Sing. It's good if they're there. But if they present some sort of perceived weakness, get off the bus. Bless them. We'll let them go. We don't need them. After all, what do we really lose if they leave? And Paul says, that is not the way God has built the body of Christ. There are no, you know, common casualties who are not necessary. And, and God's design means that everyone has intention. Whether they're fulfilling that intention or not, everyone has intention. Nobody is just, well, yeah, don't worry about them. They don't do anything. If you think you're one of those folks, or maybe you aspire to be one of those folks, hey, you know, I would really like it if I could kind of fall into the slot where, you know, I don't do anything. <laughs> I, it would be nice if I could get into that spot, you know, just that sweet spot where I don't do anything and everybody leaves me alone. That would be great, you know. If you, that is not how God designed the body. You're not going to get away with that. Not long term. Neither will someone get away for saying, ah, that person doesn't mean anything. They're off. There's a, a podcast, I think it's the number one Christian podcast in the world right now. I've been listening. I won't give you the name because I can't commend the whole podcast to you. But it's about this pastor who falls into, you know, bankruptcy and disgrace and loses his pulpit and his ministry. And this guy loses it all, not because he had some illicit affair, but because he was basically a tyrant. And as he was consolidating power among this megachurch with all these campus sites, he went on a big, you know, power trip and uh, said, you know, and this is public audio, you know, there are people who need to get off the bus. And there are people who want to stand in the way of the bus and we just need to run over him with the bus and leave a pile of corpses behind us. He's talking about his own church members. Yeah. It would be laughable if, if it wasn't true that the very leadership group who he gave that speech to didn't turn on him and they kept supporting him for the next five years. <laughs> then it's not so funny. So, this is addressed to the, if you don't like it, get off the bus crowd. Now, we teach and say things that are difficult because the Bible teaches and says things that are difficult. You may think this is really difficult. You may not like this at all. I thought I was in a good place just sitting here, you know, and now he's calling me out or whatever. When you have a problem or when you represent a challenge or when there is a concern for you, how should that be handled? pastorally, which means as a shepherd would sheep, not as a maniacal bus driver would handle, you know, a zombie in the way. I mean, the ridiculousness of that, but that happens. Uh, Mark Driscoll and T.J. McDonald, two recent examples, lost their pulpit, lost their megachurch, lost their campuses, because finally, after more than a decade in both case of complete abuse, people said, we're not letting them do this anymore. <laughs> Enough became public. Finally, verses 24b, since the, the verse is kind of divided up, the second half of verse 24 through verse 26. This is where we'll close. 
So, middle of verse 24, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's how God designed the body. That each person belongs to each other. Therefore, they care for one another. They care for one another. They serve one another. And when someone is suffering, everyone feels some part of that. And when someone is honored and blessed and doing well, everyone rejoices. The suffering person doesn't get thrown off the bus. The person doing well doesn't get envied and, and back-talked because someone is jealous of the role. That's how God designed the body. Now, you might be sitting here and ask yourself, okay, I understand this. By the way, that third one, the caring, suffering, and rejoicing together. That's what I call the third portion there. Anyway, if you're taking notes and you want to know how does he end, that's how I ended it. You may be sitting there and saying, well, here's the thing. I don't, I hear what you're saying. Here's saying. And I'm not opposed to a relationship in the church where I, I care for other members and I serve the body of Christ. I'm not opposed to that. But I, I'm not clear on what that looks like for me. And if, if that's where you're at this morning, I want to I commend you for being here and being at that spot. That is not a bad spot to be in. Now, if you're here this morning, you're like, okay, I understand what you're saying, but I don't want to serve anybody. And I, I really just want to do as little as I can, and I'm not interested in any more than that. I just want to do what's good for me, for my family, for my marriage, for my whatever, my career, my salvation, and then get out. Now, I don't have anything for you. I don't think you believe what this says. I don't think there's any other way to understand it. I just, I don't think you believe what this says. But if you're here this morning, you're like, no, I, I want to serve the Lord, and I know that I have obligations to the people here, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know what it looks like. I want to tell you that is a great place to be as we look towards next week. Okay? Because next week, uh, we are going to move into 1 Corinthians 13, and this is Paul's major course correction. And if you're sitting here wondering, I just don't know how to serve the Lord. I just don't know what to do. Chances are you're going about it the wrong way. You're thinking about it the wrong way. So next week, we're going to look at the spiritual gift that surpasses all spiritual gifts. We'll begin in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 12, and we will look at what is commonly called the love chapter, but not in probably the traditional way. Traditional to my teaching here at the church, but not traditional to broader teaching. Because the love chapter is not about a romantic poem that you recite to your husband or wife on your wedding day or that that's it's not about that it's wrong to reduce it to that it's not written to husbands who need to love their wives or wives who need to love their husbands the love chapter is written to church members who hear the preaching here and who don't understand uh, what am i supposed to do with it this is where Paul says, and we'll just look ahead to the end of verse 31, last verse in chapter 12, right? Setting up the love chapter. This is how he sets it up. Yet, 
I will show you a more excellent way. There is something better than all of the big showy spiritual gifts from verses 27 through 31. There is something more excellent. There is a way to do this. And this is what's supposed to mark the life of every Christian. There are some spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit does not give everyone. There are spiritual gifts. I don't have lots of them. But there is one spiritual gift, definitively and inarguably, that God gives to every Christian. And it is the key to figuring this thing out. You come back next week, and we will look at it together. Let's close with a word of prayer. I thank you for everything you've given us. We want to exalt you and serve you with what you've given us. Uh, Father, I ask that you'll bless our offerings and use them for your purposes. I ask, Father, that we'll have a cheerful heart both as we receive your word and give, that you'll bring us back safely and help us to continue in this study, and that our lives will be conformed to your word. Thank you for your love for us and the redemption through Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.